You're listening to St. Pius X Catholic Church in Lafayette, Louisiana. Thank you for joining us. As you all know, during Advent, Father Poirier and I have been going over the, the parts of the Mass and also trying to combine that with Advent because it's completely consistent uh, with what we do not only in the seasons, but also at the altar itself here in the sanctuary. And so we began with that very first reading, the first Sunday of Advent. Come, let us climb the Lord's mountain to the house of the God of Jacob to be instructed in his ways and to walk in his paths. And so we began with the thought of being predisposed when we come to mass. In other words, we need to have a spirit of humility. One, that we can be instructed. And then two, we admit that we're sinners. As the scripture says, anybody who says they've not sinned is a liar. And so we know that that is our predisposition coming in. So we come to mass to be instructed and to be given the power to walk in his way. We come into the church, remembering our baptism at the holy water fonts. We come, we begin. Then we prepare the way of the Lord, as John the Baptist said. We call to mind our sins, and we ask for God's mercy, getting rid of the bad so we can be filled up with the good. And then we have, of course, the Liturgy of the Word, the instructions, our weekly Bible study, and then we have a homily. Sometimes it's hit or miss, as I like to not so jokingly say. Then we move into our prayers of intercession and we begin with the offertory, the offering of the gifts coming forward. And the offerings are bread and wine. Uh, last week I didn't mention how important it is, but bread is the universal symbol for life. In every culture throughout history, bread is a symbol of life and then wine is a symbol of happiness and transformation. When we think of happiness, true happiness, peace in Christ. And so the bread and the wine have a significant meaning as you would think they would if God is the one who ordained them as the elements to become himself, to give us life, to truly make us happy and to transform us, to change us. And so we have the liturgy of the Eucharist where we make an offering to God, not just the bread and the wine, but we make of ourselves an offering to God, the body of Christ, because we are in our baptism. And I mentioned last week, I don't think I had this mass, that I hear some people who were alive before Vatican II, I have a very vague recollection of some things, not Latin, it was always English for me, but they would say, I remember when the priest would offer mass with his back to the congregation, and I would disagree with that. Priest never offered mass with his back to the congregation. Oh yes, he did, Father, you're just not old enough to remember. Oh no, he did not. The priest did not offer mass with his back to the congregation because in common terms, if you say that someone's turned their back to you, what are they saying? That you reject them, huh? You know, that you're ignoring them, that you're being rude. No, in this case, what the priest was doing is he was leading the congregation and everybody facing God, no back towards anybody, but he and the entire congregation facing God and giving the worship that Jesus ordained in the bread and the wine to become the Eucharist. 
And that's the reason why it was set up that way. It's amazing how our perceptions can get distorted, isn't it? About what we're actually doing if we are ignorant, if we do not know what we're doing. And so we have the beautiful liturgy of the Eucharist, the third part, and we then receive communion. And in communion, we are given the strength to walk in his ways. So we're instructed in the liturgy of the word. We're given the sacramental strength to walk in the way of Christ. And then we come to the concluding rite, which was the part we addressed today. So the concluding rite, it goes really, really fast, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. We have a prayer after communion, which means effectively, dear Lord, please let this sacrament and all the prayers that you'll read and effectively let this sacrament work in me so that I can come to know and to love you more or to follow you more. And then as the Lord be with you and with your spirit, may almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. And then words to the effect of go forth, the mass is ended, go and announce the gospel of the Lord and such. We need to know that's not just have a good day. Like some people say, well, Father, some priests say goodbye and have a nice day. Why don't you do that? Well, it's not part of the liturgy. It's not, I'll say that back in the gathering area. But why don't we do something a little bit different? And that's not what these things mean. Go forth, the mass is ended. Go and announce the gospel of the Lord. Go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life. What that is, is the great command. It's the great command that now that we've been instructed, now that we've been strengthened in the Eucharist, the command is to go out and to be apostles, what Paul talks about in our second reading today. In the second reading, he was called by an, to an apostle to be set apart. And then he says, through Christ, through him, we have received the grace of apostleship. That's each and every one of you. And so we, the Eucharist Mass is just the beginning of the week. It's the first day of the week. It's to strengthen us through the week. We don't come to Mass and then that's it. We're done. Our, we're, our charge is to go out and to be apostles. And what an apostle means, it's kind of one of those words that's a combination of Greek and ecclesiastical Latin. But what it means is messenger and sent forth. So we all become messengers sent forth to bring the gospel to the world. And that's our charge. And that comes first and foremost, by the way, in the family, in the family. When we go home, are we teaching our children? Are we treating our wives and loving them and our husbands and loving them as Christ loved? Are we making sure that we're forming them in the faith that's been handed down to us, whether it's by family or whether it's by simply by the grace of God? Are we making sure that we are firming up the most important part or unit of not just human beings, but of our church, the family? And then we go out into the world. So we have our first focus. We look at our family, then our church community, and then the people of the household of faith, as Paul calls them, and then our greater community. But we're all called to be apostles, and that's what that last that last line means. Go forth. The Mass has ended. Taking after the go forth, making disciples of all the nations, and then kind of the start of that. That's where we hear that. And so it's just beginning, and we go out to do the apostolate. What we do inside the church and on our campus, that's called ministry. 
But the apostolate is our apostolic, huh? Our apostolic endeavor. When we go out and we bring Christ to the world, people, a lot of people say, Father Brady, you know, it's your job to bring Christ to the world in your vocation. To a little extent it is. I mean, when I say little, I'm one person among how many billion in the world? I can't go to where you work. Heck, I can't even go to cathedral without Father Chester's permission. You know what I mean? You are the ones who bring Christ to the world in a way that is much more tangible than I do. I'm not diminishing what I do. I'm just saying I can't get to where all of you guys go. And so your job, when we think of that sending forth at the end of mass, entails much, much more, much, much more than simply goodbye and have a nice day. It is your charge to go out knowing that you've been instructed and that you have been empowered to witness to Christ and those he places in your lives outside our church building, on our church campus, and in the community where God has placed us, whether it be as a worker or as a customer somewhere or as whatever it may be, we're always disciples. And so we think of our mission. This is what Christ has put together in our worship. We worship him. We are empowered by him. We are instructed by him. We do all that in the mass. And then we are sent forth by him. And that's what the meaning or hopefully the effect of the mass is for each and every one of us. One of the things I mention every now and again, and I think it's important, just so we understand, because sometimes there's what's called indifferentism. Doesn't really matter how you worship God. As long as you worship the right God, Jesus, and doesn't matter, matter where you go, as long as you're a quote, good and holy person. I, I agree that we all need to be good and there is a certain unity among Christians, but it does make a difference about how you worship. And some people will criticize the Catholic church saying, come on, man, you gotta get in the 21st century, you know? God's been doing this for 2000 years. Well, there's a reason for that. Not only is it because of what Christ said, but some people have actually told me, we want to be just like the first Christians. You know, you Catholics are not like the first Christians in the way that you worship. We want to be just like them. And we're a Bible church. I said, well, how are you going to do that? The first Christians didn't have a Bible. You know, they didn't. It wasn't done yet. Paul's still writing, you know. And so this is a, an excerpt from Justin Martyr. He lived, he began his life around 100, 100 A.D., and he lived, I think, till about 65. Obviously, Justin Martyr means that he died. This is an apology or an argument that he wrote to the Roman Empire. And he was in Rome. Now, something that's important about this. He didn't know St. Peter because St. Peter was already gone, but he probably knew somebody who knew St. Peter. So this is how far back this writing goes. It's written by somebody who knew somebody who knew St. Peter. That's why this post-apostolic fathers is so important to tell us about the faith. But he describes the mass to the Roman emperors who were wanting to persecute the Christians, trying to convince them we pose no threat. Didn't work, obviously. But this is what he writes, and I've edited it. It's from his apology, his first apology, numbers 66 and 67. So he begins, no one may share the Eucharist with us unless he believes what we teach is true. He lives in accordance with the principles given us by Christ and is regenerated by the waters of baptism. By the way, that's what we still have to do in order to be disposed to receive communion, huh? 
Got to be baptized. Got to believe that the Eucharist is the Eucharist, which is why we don't share with other denominations. They just don't believe it. That's why I don't ask any of them to ever genuflect when they come in our church. They're welcome, but I'm not going to ask them to kneel before someone they don't think is God. And then we have to live in accordance. So we think of if we have mortal sin on our soul, then we need to go to confession and be reconciled before we receive communion. Those things have been in existence ever since then. Because we do not consume the Eucharistic bread and wine as if it were ordinary food and drink, as it becomes the flesh and blood of the incarnate Jesus by the power of his own words contained in the prayer of thanksgiving, the Eucharistic prayer, the power of those words. The power of those words is what transforms the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. The apostles in their recollections, which are called gospels, handed down to us what Jesus commanded them to do. And then he, and there's a last kind of thing that he mentions before talking about the mass specifically, the rich among us help the poor and we are always united. One body of Christ, both here in Lafayette and the other churches of the entire world. And then he begins to describe the Sunday mass. This is where, this is what Christians around 100 AD, only 60 or 70 years after Christ died. This is how they worship God. On Sunday, we have a common assembly of all our members, whether they live in the city or the outlying districts. The recollections of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as there is time. When the reader is finished, the president of the assembly speaks to us. I'm the president, by the way. I kind of like that. But the president of the assembly speaks to us. He urges everyone to imitate the examples of virtue we have heard in the readings. That would be the homily. Then we all stand up together and pray. That would be the creed and then our petitions. On the conclusion of our prayer, bread and wine and water are brought forward. The president offers prayers and gives thanks to the best of his ability. And the people give assent by saying, amen. The Eucharistic prayer and the great amen. Huh? The Eucharist is distributed, everyone present communicates, and the deacons take it to those who are absent. The wealthy, if they wish, make a contribution, and they themselves decide the amount. See, even back then, they had an offertory. You know, the basket was passed, right? Even back then. The collection is placed in the custody of the president, and then it goes on. We hold our common assembly on Sunday because it is the first day of the week the day on which God put darkness and chaos to flight and created the world. And because on that same day, our Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead. When we think of what we are supposed to do as Christians and how to worship God, we worship him the way that he has commanded us and taught us to worship him. And this goes back, I would, any denomination, I would challenge them to find how the early Christians lived and why this is so important, because we're doing what God has told us word for word for 2,000 years. It is the way that he has taught us that we can be empowered and strengthened, and in his word, in the Bible, we can be instructed in how to live a life in him. And the Mass does that every Sunday, every day, if we wanted to. Speaking of which, as we move towards this last week of Advent, everybody's getting ready. I know I am. I've got to do my... I'm very late on this, got to get my note to Santa out. Uh, a couple of things as we move into this week, because it's busy for everybody, including us here at the church. The first is don't forget to be nice to our visitors. We are going to have a lot of people 
Saturday evening. It is going to be packed. For some, it will be uncomfortable. For some, it will be noisy. To those of you who are that, by the way, I say, don't come to the 4 p.m. or the 6 p.m. Mass. Those are going to be very crowded and it's going to be difficult to get in and out. Don't have getting out of parking a near occasion of sin as you leave and be nice to the people who are coming, many of whom we haven't seen in a while. If they come and they have a good experience for those who are here because Christ has given us that disposition, maybe we can draw them back again. And so just remember to be nice next weekend. And speaking of that, uh, we do need ministers for some of the Sunday morning masses uh, and still some for the evening. We particularly need help for readers in the morning at the 7.30 and the 10.30 and then uh, Eucharistic ministers uh, for the 6 p.m., the 10 p.m. in the evening and then Christmas Day, 9 and 10.30. So if you are able and your calendar permits, maybe change a little bit of your schedule, it would be very helpful if you would go look at the schedule and volunteer uh, who, if you are able to do that. And then last this week, last chance for confessions, Thursday night. If everybody coming, our bishop's coming, again, if you want to avoid his confessional, be sure to ask which one is the bishop and stay away from it. Just kidding. He's great. He really is great. Um, but he's going to come and help because we need the help. We have so many people that come. But Thursday night will be the last chance for confessions. We do have a bit of an odd mass schedule. I'm not going to go through it, but we're pretty regular. We're all the way regular through Thursday on daily masses. This last week is a great week to come to mass. It's about the immediate events leading to Jesus' birth. It's the first chapter of Luke for the Gospels. It's wonderful. And then We'll move into our Thursday after Thursday night. We'll have a Friday and Saturday schedule. It's a little different for the daily mass. And then of course, Saturday night, we start the vigils. For all of you who are traveling, God bless you. Have a safe trip. Know of my prayers for you. And I pray that you will continue to pray for me. Let's enjoy Christmas the way it was intended to be first and foremost, a deepening of our knowledge and love of Christ. And then we can celebrate that in the worldly blessings that he has given to us. Indeed, that is worthy of celebration. Let's make sure we have the cart before, no, the horse before the cart.